You know, as you look at Isaiah chapter 44 and 45, we realize there's a cohesive message in both chapters. In these chapters, we find the mention recurringly about God's people, God's love for his people, God's long-suffering towards his people, God's mercies, and God's forgiveness. You might say in chapters 44 and 45, we have somewhat of the history of Israel, the history of Judah. God's working their lives. And repeatedly, at least six or seven times, the Lord makes the statement. In fact, we read three of them this morning between 17 and 25. And that statement is, I am the Lord, there is none else, there is no God beside me. That's an emphatic statement. That's an unchangeable statement. It speaks about the fact that there is no other God besides our God. Amen. I am God. There is none else. God does not compete with anybody or anything. He doesn't need to because there's only one God. And as he says this, though, it's a people that in their hearts, their imagination, decided that they had to have other gods. And we're going to look at that for just a minute. But we're going to look at this, this thought of how God made this statement over and over again in two chapters that I am the Lord, there's none else, there's no God beside me. Why God had to say that, and as we look at that, how God in his appeal turns to these people and he tells them about 170 years later about some things that would unfold, and then he tells them, look at in verse 20, in verse 20, uh, excuse me, 21 and 22, that he's a just God and his Savior, and he says, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I'm God and there's none else. Now, we want to see some things this morning about this, how this all pulls together about the entire plan of salvation, the entire plan God has for every one of us, what God desires of your heart and mind, and seeing this morning how God can be glorified through this. The first thing we see this morning, if you have your notes in front of you, the first thing you want to notice this morning, going back to chapter 44, is the flagrant sin. We have to understand why God had to repeatedly make this statement. We have to understand repeatedly why, why God had to reinforce and say over and over again certain things because there is a doctrine, there is a principle he wanted to enforce. And what we find here this morning is that we have to look at the flagrant sin. Now, in chapter 43, as we remember last week, we saw in verses 23 to 28, uh, 22 to 28 that God called out the sins of his people, and there were four specific sins God called out. He called out the sin of prayerlessness, and uh, one of the, one of the uh, exercises, um, one of the practices we have in our Christian faith that demonstrates our love for God and a desire to fellowship with him is a time of prayer and spending time with God. Uh, when you consider the matter of prayer, God invites us to come to him in prayer. He says, let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help and come in time of need. Uh, the Bible tells us that we're to ask and, re and you shall receive and seek and you shall find and knock and it shall be opened unto you. So we currently we find in the Bible God invi invites us to come and pray to him. In Jeremiah 33, 3, kind of coinciding with what we're studying here today. He says, call unto me and I'll answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. So there was the sin of prayerlessness that God's people were not calling upon him. They saw no need to call upon him. They were self-sufficient. There was no need to exercise faith. There was no need to trust God. There was no need to call upon God. for. They just had everything all figured out. You know, it's a dangerous place to be, brother and sister in Christ, when we're at a place in life where we've got everything figured out, everything is turnkey for us, and we can just go about our thing and do our routine, and we don't have faith in God, and we can't trust God. I was having a, a time with some of our men this week. We had a, we had a, a, a time on, I think it was Tuesday, and I had several men on, the, on a, a Zoom call. We were talking, and 
I was sharing with them from Psalms 125, verse 1, about the, they that trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion. The Bible says they shall never be moved. They shall abide forever. And I said, you know, one of the, one of the challenges we have about living, modern day living here in America in the 21st century is that there's not a whole lot we have to do to trust in God. Our equation, our equating of trust in God is when a crisis comes or when we see an opportunity that we hope will prevail towards our benefit, that's when we think about trusting God. But in reality is trusting God and having faith in God is beyond just the normal routines of life. And so God's people were not calling him. They were at a place where they were self-sufficient. They were wealthy. They were well-to-do. They had everything they needed. They weren't bothered by their enemies. They, had, they, were, they were in the cutting edge of, at that day of their medicine and technologies. They didn't have a need for God, so they were not calling him. There was a second sin God called out. He says there was a sin of being weary or tired of God. They are at the place, he says, you've become weary of me. In other words, you're tired of me. You're tired of worshiping me. You're tired of praying to me. You're tired of reading your Bible. And, you know, sometimes, honestly, in the Christian life, you can get that place when you can get into what we would say a rut. And a rut is where you just kind of do the same thing, and it doesn't, you don't feel like anything's changing, and nothing's happening there. Uh, one of our disciples messaged me this week and said, Pastor, I need you to pray for one of, one of, the, one of our pre- people in the discipleship class. They kind of feel like they're in that place of a rut. They feel like they're in a place where there's just nothing's going on in our life. Now, I pray that's not true of you, but sometimes it might be, and it may be because you've just gotten tired of God. And so God was calling it out. There was a third sin God called out. He was calling out the sin of stealing because they were not tithing. They were not giving their best to the Lord. They, were not, they had forsaken the burnt offerings, which they were supposed to do every morning upon the brazen altar. And they were not bringing the best, the smallest of their cattle and their, the firstborn of their sheep, which God had commanded them to do in Exodus and Leviticus there. And said so they were not doing that. So they were basically stealing from God. And then the fourth sin that God called out on them was the sin of holding back on God, that they were just holding out on God and not doing all that they can. Now, when we look at all those things and we consider verses 22 to 28, chapter 43, those all sound really bad. Those all sound very um, uh, just, you know, like, you know, wow, we did all those kind of things against you, Lord. But we get to chapter 44. Did you notice this? We get to chapter 44, and God calls out the root of their sin. God calls out, in fact, it's not the first time. In fact, we've preached on this already. It's not the first time. It's not the second time. It's not the last time. But God calls out the root of their sin. God calls, calls out the baseline of what was causing all this. And God calls out the one sin that was causing him perhaps the most heartache and grief about it. And you notice here in verses 10 to 20, go to chapter 44, verse 10 to 20, God calls out their sin of idolatry, their sin of idolatry, the flagrant sin in Judah and the people of Jerusalem and what put Israel, which why Israel was, was taken out as a nation years, years, uh, years before this, was because of the sin of idolatry. Now, we're going to quickly go through verses 10 and 20, but notice this. Verse 10 and 20, he identifies what these people were doing. He gets into very, very, um, how should I say, very colorful details about the practices of, of idolatry there. Now, for those of you who may not be familiar with it, idolatry is worshiping anyone or anything else other than God. It's when someone or something has our affection, our adoration, our attention more than God. It is something or someone that we bow to, that we actually would bow and we would give our, our adherence to, and I'll identify some things in a minute. The very first commandment we are given by in the Bible says, Thou shalt have no other God before me. It would be good for you to go back to Exodus chapter 20 and to rehearse and revive in your mind the Ten Commandments and remind yourself that God established those for a reason. The Ten Commandments are the pillar of a society. The Ten Commandments are a reminder to us of a holy and a righteous God, of the relationship God has 
that he desires us to have. And the very fact the first commandment deals with the matter of idolatry, it deals with the heart of the fact that God wants a relationship with you and he wants a relationship with me, that God desires a relationship. It takes us back to the Garden of Eden and to why God made Adam and Eve, and in making them, he made them to have fellowship with them. The very idea of, of idolatry is, is basically saying, God, I don't have time for you, or God, I don't need you. And so idolatry is when we have other gods before us. You notice the description that God gives here. In verses 10 to 20, he makes some descriptions here. You'll notice in verse 11, he says, Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed. And he talked about the workmen, they are men. And he talked about in verse 12 about the smith with his tongs, working with his coals, and fashioning with his hammers. And the carpenter in verse 13, stretching out his ruler and marking out with, with, with lines and fitting with planes. I mean, God gets into some very colorful uh, description of what these people are doing. Because in the idolatries, what they were doing is a craftsman. I mean, people were making their trade money and making a living. And read about this later on in, in the book of Acts, where people, the craftsmen and, and tradesmen and, uh, if you would, carpenters and people like that in Smiths, they literally made their living and they thrived in their living by people coming to them and saying, I want you to make this idol god the way, and they'd, and they'd have in their imagination, they'd come, I want you to make this idol god a certain shape, a certain way, I want you to make it as a certain person, and they would come, and these Smiths, if you look at verse 12 and 13, these Smiths and these carpenters actually made a full-time living making and crafting these idols that were placed in the marketplace and being sold to the Jews there. And so he describes that these people were committing their resources and their efforts in making idols out of wood, out of metal, and out of stone. Can you imagine that? They committed their time and their resources in making idols out of, out of wood and metal and stone. Notice some of the description of the effort that was involved. Look at verse 12. He says, the smith with his tongs both worketh in the coals and fashioneth with hammers and worketh with the strength of his arms. Notice this. Here is a smith devoting an entire day's energy, holding tongs and a hammer and shaping and forming these idol gods. And he says here in verse 12 that the extent of the energy and effort involved with it, he said in verse 12, Yea, he is hungry, and his strength faileth. He drinketh no water in his faith. In other words, he was so committed to his work. He was so committed to producing these idol gods and fulfilling the desires of all the customers who came. This man skipped his meals. He sometimes forgot to hydrate himself. He would be in front of that, that, that uh, intensive heat of the fire as he was forging these things, and he would get dehydrated, but he would go on. His arms would grow weary. His forearms would start to shake. His arms would start to get, get weary there. He would, get, he would be, be dehydrated. He would be faint, and he would be hungry. And he talks about here that these people committing all of these resources, all of their effort, all of their time, were committing themselves to the making of idols after their imaginations there. Then he goes on to say something else here. He says about the, about the, about the carpenter in verse 13. He says, the carpenter stretches out his rule. He marks it out with a line and fits it with planes. I mean, when I think of that, I'm thinking of somebody from an architectural and draftsman standpoint that is really putting some time into just marking off. He's using, he's using all the things that architects and carpenters use and trying to design things. He wants it to be picture perfect. He's not just making the idol itself. He's making the shelf that the idol is going to go upon. He's thinking about the architecture and the home of the person that they're going to place this in and the size of this uh, idol. I mean, there was thought. I mean, when we think about 
idols we take for granted, there was a lot of thought, and there was a lot of effort, and there was a lot of money. These people came, they would devote huge amounts of gold and silver by which these idols would be made, especially if they were very well-to-do people and very abundant in what they did. And so they would be committing these resources and making all these idols. All I want to say this morning without getting into a lot of detail, you can read this to yourself in verses 10 to 20, that their sin was the sin of idolatry. They committed time and resource to You see, idolatry is the God that we give all of our thought and all of our effort and all of our strength and all of our resource and time and money to. You look at America today and the world at large, there's the giving of our effort and our time and money. There's the worship of the body through athleticism and time in the gym. There are some who give so much time to the worship and the building of their body. They spend more time on that. They're more impressed with what they see in the mirror of, the, uh, of their body instead of the mirror of the word of God. There's the worship of the body. There's the worship of the mind where some will spend all their life studying and reading. There's nothing wrong with studying and reading. We're all for that. But when they're committing themselves perhaps to a theory or idea of some kind, they're chasing or pursuing that just crowds God out of their life. There's the worship of the body and the worship of the mind. Or you might take someone who's a financial genius of some kind who just studies these things. Or someone who's a motivational expert who gives themselves to the study of people and things and, and they give themselves to that. And those who give themselves to statistical data and things of that nature. There's the worship of the body and the worship of the mind. And then I think of educators, the worship of education. The educators and those seeking to be educated where they're just devoting themselves great hours of a day and great hours of time to education. There's the worship of materialism, the time we spend thinking about, I'm going to buy this, and I'm going to buy that, and I'm going to put this in my house, and I'm going to do this. And nothing wrong with all these things I'm talking about. Education is necessary, and, uh, and the exercise of our mind is necessary, and keeping our body fit is necessary, and education is necessary, and, uh, and materi- material things we have to have, at least in some minimum there. And then we think about the worship of work and career and professionalism. And be- beyond all that is self-worship. I'm just saying today, as you look at Israel, and you look at Judah, what was practiced in those days they were doing was not anything different that's being practiced today in modern-day America, modern-day North and South America, modern-day of the world, modern-day Asia and other places like that. We see that their flagrant sin was the sin of idolatry. But we go a little bit further. We see their flagrant sin. We see an injustice. Notice this, if you would. As he's describing this, Isaiah's describing this, this is nothing new to them. But he's actually going to a little bit more detail, describing their day-by-day activities and the commitment to the worship of things other than God. And there's some choice words that Isaiah uses here to describe the injustice and idolatry. Would you notice these words he uses? And I don't have time to get much into it, but let's, let's notice verse 10. Who has formed a God, a molten, a graven image? Notice this phrase, that is profitable for nothing. It's profitable for nothing. All the time, effort, resource, what did it accomplish? Look at verse 11. Be all his fellows shall be ashamed, and the workmen, they are of men. Let them be gathered together. Let them stand up. Notice this. Yet they shall fear, they be, shall be ashamed together. He uses the same phrase in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 16. He's talking about the, the manufacturing, the producing, and the worship of idols is shameful. Brother and sister in Christ, though it may not be true of us, but yet it may be, idolatry is an injustice to a holy and righteous God. Idolatry occurs because the one given to idolatrous practice is not content with God. They're not satisfied with God. 
giving to idolatrous practices are originate because someone feels in their heart, I've had enough of God. I'm worried of him. They feel that God is not enough. They need something other than God. Idolatry occurs when we want God to give us what we want and what we lust after. Idolatry occurs because we want to remake the creator. Idolatry is an outrage against the God of all creation, the God who made us. It's an outrage against the God who provides all our needs, a God who made the sun and the stars and the moons and the galaxies and all that we have, a God who made the grandeur of the mountains, which, which did not come of itself, a God who made the oceans, a God who gives us the blue skies, a God who gives us all the intricacies of the creation we have, a God who has fearfully and wondrously made you and I. Idolatry of any form or matter where we give something and attention more than we give to God is an outrage and injustice to a holy and a righteous God. Their flagrant sin was idolatry. Their flagrant sin was injustice. But notice their flagrant sin, if you notice this, notice something out there. Their flagrant sin, notice the irony in their idolatry. In verses 15 to 19, we have a description of the irony here. Here are these people, they would, were making these gods, but before they even got to that, they got to the place, they said, well, you know, I'm going to grow my own trees. And they would grow a tree, or they would go to an orchard where there were many trees, that they would go there and chop down a tree. They would chop down this tree, and that same tree would have multiple uses. Some of that wood would be firewood they would use for burning, for cooking. Some would be for making man, for furniture of some kind. He says in verse 15, Then it shall be for man to burn, for he will take thereof and warm himself. Yea, he kindleth and baketh bread. Yea, he maketh a god and worship it. He maketh a graven image and falls down to it. Notice verse 17. And he says, And the residue thereof he maketh a god. What he's saying there is this, that they would take this wood and these trees and chop them down, and they would use it for all the natural necessary uses they needed for cooking, whatever there. And then they would take the remainder, the residue thereof, and out of the imagination of their heart, they would shape and fasten with a carving knife, they would shape a god that they would worship they would bow down and worship to and the irony of it is that these gods that they were worshiping on one end the same tree they chopped down they would use it for kindling and for firewood on the other end they would take the residue the leftover and make a god out of that just ironic that they would bow and worship to the same thing, this tree, this God so-called deity that they hope would bless them, this deity they hope would get them through the day. Here's a, here's a deity that they could control by chopping down, and yet on the other end they would bow down and worship it. Here's this deity that they would burn in the fire and would perish in the fire, but this same deity be the one they would bow and worship to. And as we look at that, their idolatry, which was an injustice, their idolatry, which was an irony, their, just, their, their, their idolatry left them incomplete. Notice the thought he gives here in verse, the next verse here, in verse 20. He feedeth on ashes, a deceived heart has turned him aside, that he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? And what God was saying in all these verses, he was, he was equating his people and their practices to what the pagans were doing. The pagans make their gods, but their gods do not make them. The pagans carry their gods, but their gods cannot carry their burdens. The pagans protect their gods, but their gods cannot protect them. The pagans sacrifice their gods, but none of them have a god that would sacrifice for them. But we have a god. I said we have a god who made us, who carries us, who takes our burdens, who loves us. 
who has hands that can feel and a heart that can be touched and eyes that look upon us. And to God, more than anything else, beyond us sacrificing him, he gave the greatest sacrifice for us. Amen? These people are incomplete. Look at verse 22. They were going through the motions and the motions and the motions. He says, their feet are unanswered. They were incomplete. Idolatry leaves the worshiper empty, insecure, and fearful. Psalms 135, verse 18 says, They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. You see the flagrant sin. Why did God bring that out? Well, because remember now, God is prophesying in these chapters about their future. Isaiah is telling them, this is what your sin is. You haven't changed. There's been no, there's been no change. There's no indication that you've changed. And he says, so, at the time of this writing, it's perhaps right at the tail end or perhaps even past Manasseh's reign. And he says, you know what, a time's coming, because he told Hezekiah this, King Hezekiah, that the king of Babylon is going to come down. And 100 years from this writing, the king of Babylon did come down. This was written right around 700, uh, 700 B.C. The Babylonian invasion came around between 600 B.C. and 599 B.C. He came down. He took them captive. God prophesied over and over again, especially if you read through the book of Jeremiah, he prophesied that they would be in captivity for 70 years, and the 70 years equated for all the number of times and years they had forsaken the Sabbath year, uh, the Sabbath year and letting the land rest and worshiping God. And God was telling them all this because one day some Jews would pick up the scrolls of Isaiah, and they would pick it up and read it and say, oh, God talked about this. This is why we're in this situation. This is why this explains why we're in this situation, but also explains what God's going to do. And through all this, even though God seems harsh in describing their sin and describing their punishment, we see their flagrant sin. But we have to stop for a minute. And we have to stop for a minute to remind ourselves that God is not a God who has, doesn't have feelings. And God is not a God who doesn't care. And God is not a God who forsakes us. But reminded in all this, as we look at chapter 40, we move towards chapter 45, we're reminded today that we see a faithful sovereign. We see God who is sovereign in these chapters. God who is mighty, but he's a faithful God. And remind you this morning, when you woke up, brother and sister in Christ, we can, we can echo what Jeremiah the prophet said in the book of Lamentations, that the Lord's mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Amen? His mercies are new every morning. I mean, he gives us a new day, and a new day, and a new start, and a new revelation, and a new, a new beginning. And he gives us a new energy, and a new, a new infusion of his, of his power and his help for the day. He says, his mercies are new every morning, that we can have God's forgiveness. We can have God's mercies for the day. We have a new protection, and God shines his face upon it. We see the faithfulness of our sovereign God. Notice again Isaiah chapter 45, verse 5. I am the Lord, there is none else, there is no God. Beside me I girded thee, though as thou hast not known me. 
God is saying here to his people that he's a sovereign God. He's a great God, that there's none beside him, that he's in control and never out of control. Now notice as we weave all that together, God has a message in mind. He's told them about their sin. He's pointed out to them in Isaiah chapter 44, verses 10 to 20, how flagrant it was, how unjust it was, how incomplete it left them. But now he takes them to the point where he wants to remind them of just some things God is doing about how he is a faithful sovereign. And he does it in three ways. Number one, God shows that he's a faithful sovereign through his power. Look at repeatedly how God reminds them and reminds you and I of his power. And that power is seen in the fact that his power is absolute. His power is unchangeable. His power is infinite. Number one, we see his power is God, our creator. Look at chapter 44, verse 2. I'm going to read some verses. You can just follow along. In Isaiah 44, verse 2, God speaks of his power as creator. He says, thus saith the Lord that made thee and formed thee from the womb. Chapter 44, verse 21, I have formed thee, thou art my servant. Chapter 44, verse 24, thus saith the Lord thy redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb. I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. Chapter 45, verse 7, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Chapter 45, verse 12, I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their hosts have I, have I command. Now, God repeatedly in his power is reminding them that all things were created by him and for him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Now, why did he say that? Because here in their imagination, they were creating, they were making these gods out of their own hands, but it was something they formed. When God made us, he made us out of nothing. You have to remember that. God took nothing and made something. When we make something, we make it out of imagination or mind. We take materials at our disposal and make it. And he's reminding them that he's an almighty, powerful creator, that all things that are in existence are here because of him. We have to remind ourselves about the power of God as our creator. By faith, we know that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which appear were not made by things which we see. We have to remind ourselves, according to Hebrews 11:3, that God is an almighty creator and that because he's creator, then in all things he should have preeminence. God manifests his power as creator. Notice in Isaiah 44, verse 6, God manifested his power as king. Notice Isaiah 44, verse 6, thus saith the Lord, the king of Israel and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Now we have to remind ourselves, God had to tell his people that he was their king because above their earthly king, there's one king they worship and bow to, and that's God, our, that's God himself. He had to remind himself, as Paul said, that he's the king eternal, that he's the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We see his power as king. We see his power as creator. But notice Isaiah 45, verse 5. We see his power as God, who is Lord. Now, he's Lord over everything. Creator, king, and Lord. Creator, king, and Lord. Now, if just those three things, when we wake up in the morning, go to bed at night, and we praise and worship God for who he is, we should worship him and adore him for being creator, king, and Lord. Amen? We should adore him and worship him as being creator, king, and Lord. Because if we cannot acknowledge him as creator, and if we cannot acknowledge him as Lord, and we cannot acknowledge him as king, then there's an interruption between you and I in our relationship with God. If we cannot acknowledge that, we're still saying we're struggling with the fact that God should be in control. We're struggling with the fact there's only one king of my life. We're struggling with the idea that he should be Lord of our life, that he has control over every facet of our life. 
Henry Morris said this, It is foundational to know him as maker. It is salvational to know him as redeemer and friend and Lord. And it is motivational to know him as our coming king. Now, we see God manifest himself as a faithful sovereign in his power. But here's the good part. Go down to chapter 44 and 40, and the, the end of chapter 44, and look at the beginning of chapter 45. Because remember, when you look at the bigger picture here, God is talking to a people and giving them an idea of the next 170 years of their lives. The next 170 years of their, of their, of their, of their nationality, uh, as a nation, as a sovereignty, as a nation. He shows he's a faithful sovereign through his power. But in chapter 44, as we look at verses 26 to 28, going through chapter 45, verses 1 to 4, God shows he's a faithful sovereign through his providence. Through his providence. Providence, as we said in another message, is God's invisible hand working behind the scenes in your life and mine. Proverbs chapter 16 is a wonderful chapter to read. In fact, most of the book of Proverbs is about this, but Proverbs 16 especially, as it details for us the providence of God in your life and mine. And help us to understand things which do not make sense in the beginning, but at the end it all works out together. Romans 8.28 tells us that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his verse. That's the providence of God. The providence of God was when Joseph's brothers thought he would turn on them and Joseph said to them, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And as we see the providence of God, we see God's providence unveiling itself in the history of the nation of Judah. Now, as we read this, I want you to park and think about this for just a moment, because I wish I had time to develop it. I don't. Number one, as we study the providence of God, as we study the providence of God, we see history being prophesied and history in the making. And here is one of many examples we see a validation that the Bible is the word of God because 170 years before this event would occur, God would God prophesies of it and it is fulfilled exactly to the T as God describes it. And what God gives us here is his prophetical announcement about a future king that would rise up. And this future king that would rise up that God would have his hand upon is a man by the name of Cyrus who would be the king of Persia. Now, if you look at the order of the great world powers back in that time, there would be Babylon, there would be Medo-Persia, there would be the Grecian, the Grecian rule, and there would be the Roman Empire. Now, all of those, the unveiling of that before all of it happened is detailed in the Word of God. God's Word validates and proves for itself that the Word of God is accurate historically. And the Word of God is accurate, by the way, scientifically. And the Word of God is just accurate, period. Amen? It's just an accurate description because the Word of the Lord abides forever. And so we go over here, notice what he says. He's describing how Cyrus would be raised up by God and through the province of God that God would use Cyrus to bring the people of Jerusalem that were taken captive by the Babylonians, he would bring them back into the land of Jerusalem. Notice what he says here. Verse 26, that confirmeth the word of his servant. Now, who's he talking about there? Well, Isaiah is prophesying about this. So God is saying here, I'm going to confirm everything that I told Isaiah to say to you. He said in verse 26, that confirmeth the word of his servant and performeth the counsel of his messengers, that saith to Jerusalem, thou shalt be inhabited to the cities of Judah, ye shall be built, 
and I will raise up the decayed places thereof. Now, that's a word of encouragement because years later, some Jews would pick up the scroll of Isaiah and turn to chapter 44. They would be discouraged because we read this last time. In Psalms 137, the Bible says that the captives of, of Judah would sit by the rivers of Babylon, speaking about the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers. They would sit there and they would weep and they would be under the willow trees and they would weep because they were taken captive. But God would give them hope. And God would give them assurance. Let me just tell you this morning, when you're down and when you're discouraged and you're in need of hope, go to the Word of God. Amen? Go to God's Word for your help and for your encouragement and strength. Because even though you might be like the rivers of Babylon and they're weeping, God has a word for you during those moments of weeping. Sorrow will endure for a night, the Bible says, but joy cometh in the morning. And so God's telling them in verse 26, I'm going to tell you something here. You're going to be inhabited again. The cities of Judah will be filled. People will come back again. There will be joy. And we read about that in Psalms 126. He says, those cities will be built back up because even though they were demolished, they will be built back up. He says, I will raise up the decayed places thereof. And he talked about in verse 27. He says, I say to the deep, be dry, and I'll dry up the rivers. And what he's talking about there is that the great Euphrates River, upon which, the, which flowed through the city of Babylon, and upon which that they, were, that they were dependent upon. He said God would dry up those rivers, and God did. God used Cyrus to dry up those rivers. Cyrus uh, built these dams, and he diverted the waterway. So on that night of that evening, which he took over, took back, the, the, took over Babylon and defeated them, the waters were diverted, and the moat, the moat of water that surrounded the city was, was drained out, and the, and the soldiers of Medo-Persia, led by Cyrus, were able to come underneath the city, and they basically came through the moat and underneath the city. And as he talks about here, they went there. And he says here, that saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built and to the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. Now stopping there, let me say this. God providentially fulfilled all that. Go to the book of Ezra and you read in the very first chapter how God fulfills that. Go to the tail end of the book of Second Chronicles, the very last chapter, and God fulfills that. You go over there and read over in Jeremiah. God fulfills that. He speaks about Cyrus. He names Cyrus by name. Now, Cyrus hasn't even been born. Now, we know historically Cyrus was born in 598 B.C., a year after the Babylonian takeover of Jerusalem. He's born a year later. When he would arise, the takeover, the defeat of Babylon would occur in 538 B.C., Cyrus hasn't even been born when this is written, when this is prophesied. But his name is mentioned there, and God says he'll raise him up. It mentions Cyrus as a shepherd. He would come in a shepherding mode. It is said historically that his grandfather, read, uh, was, was, uh, when, when Cyrus was born, that his grandfather was a very insecure man who was fearful that his grandson Cyrus would become king one day. And so he sent out an edict for his soldiers to go out to find his grandson to kill him. But one of the servants in the palace had compassion and pity upon Cyrus. And the Bible, the story tells us historically that they took, they took Cyrus up into some hillside area where a bunch of shepherds were. And they left him there and he was left in the care of a shepherd, a shepherd for many years until he came back. He was ready, he became a young man. And as a young man, full of fury and full of war, he came and overthrew his grandfather and his father and defeated them. And the Lord, the Lord pictured Cyrus here as a shepherd. Look at chapter 45, verse 1. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, 
to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him. And I will loosen the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates and the gate that shall not be shut. I want you to understand, brother and sister Christ, in chapter 44, verse 27, and chapter 45, verse 1, that prophetically is talking about how God would work through Cyrus in overtaking the city of Babylon, how, how, of how Belshazzar would be defeated that night, that he would be in a drunken stupor. Notice in chapter 45, verse 1, we saw in chapter 44, verse 27, about the waters. But he says that night that he would loosen the loins of kings. If you go over there to Daniel chapter 5, and I think it's verse 6, we read about the loins of Belshazzar being loose. In other words, he was shaking in his limbs. His knees were shaking. His hips were shaking. He was shaking in himself about how fearful this would be, that the judgment of God would be upon us. And it says here that he would loosen the loins of kings, and he said he would open the two-leaved gates. The entryway into the city of Babylon were these two massive gates, two massive gates that are described as leave gates. That night, because the soldiers, everyone in the city was participating in this drunken, this drunken feast, they were drunken, the gates were left open, the waters were diverted that night, the moat was dried out, and it became very easy for them to come through. Notice what it says here in verse 1, and he says, and the gates shall not be shut, and he says, I will go before thee, and I will make the crooked places straight, I will break in pieces the gates of the brass, and cut asunder the bars of iron. It describes here in full detail the captivity of Israel or Judah being, being uh, taken care of by God. By raising up this man by the name of Cyrus, Cyrus would come in. He would defeat them without even having to lift a finger, without even having to fight them. They overcame the Babylonians that time. Belshazzar was killed that night. His chief men were killed that night. Everything was left open for them. And Cyrus, if you look back at chapter 44 and verse 28 here, he would give this command. And he would say to the people, the Jews, you're going to go back to Jerusalem, and the temple would be laid. The foundation would be laid. You say, well, Pastor Fong, that's all great history, but what's that got to do? God's in control. Amen? I mean, God's in control. I mean, God knows everything, and God is all-powerful, and there's no king that's greater than our king. And there's no leader that's greater than our Lord. And there's no, there's no man that could script anything as great as God. And it tells us something else. It tells us that God in his providence, even though he saw a people that sinned and a people that he had to chasten, God in his providence, his ultimate goal was to get his people back into the land. His ultimate goal was to get his people back to where they would realize they had messed up and they would have a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance with God. And God would have them realize that God had to chasten them, to have them realize that they had sinned against an almighty God. But God had in mind that they were not going to stay permanently down in Babylon and they would not stay permanently down in Persia. But God would bring them back to the land. But it would not be by their own machination. It would have to be by God himself that would make this possible. And by the way, we read later on in chapter 45. There was no money the Jews had to pay. They didn't have to pay anything to buy their freedom. Their freedom was bought for them by God himself. That's amazing, amen? If you wanted to go free in those days, you had to pay an enormous sum of money. No slave would be let go freely without a redemption price being paid. And so this mention is made of Cyrus. God raised up Cyrus for one reason. To bring his people back to the land. So we're talking about a faithful sovereign. Can I tell you in your darkest time of sorrow, God never forgets you? Can I tell you in your deep, deepest time of sorrow and your heartache and your trials, God leads you step by step. God directs you, though you may feel like you're wandering in the dark and you feel like you're 
groping in the fog. The reality of it is God is in control. God is never out of control. We sometimes make the statement, God is still on his throne. Hey, listen, God has always been on his throne. Amen? God's never left his throne. God is always on his throne. God is always in control. God is always ahead of the game. God knows exactly what to do. And listen, when we feel like things are out of control because we cannot think beyond tomorrow, listen, God is fully in control. But what God wants us to do is realize we need to rest on him and depend upon him. We see a faithful sovereign. He's faithful in his power. He's faithful in his promise. But notice this. He's faithful because he's personal. You boil it down to here. God calls names of individuals. He talked about his working there. Look at chapter 44. Just give you a couple thoughts because I need to get to my main point. We're almost done. In verse 2, look how personal. Chapter 40, verse 2, how personal God is. Thus saith the Lord. By the way, you see that repeated over and over again. Thus saith the Lord in these chapters. He says, God's word never fails. His word abides forever. Thus saith the Lord that made thee and formed thee from the womb. When he says that, he's saying, I've got a purpose for your life. Listen, nobody here this morning, nobody in our next service, nobody here, you weren't born out of accident. You weren't an accident. You were born on purpose. Amen? You have a purpose for God. You're not an afterthought. You're a forethought. You have a purpose. What to God we not languish and go our way thinking that life is humdrum. Life is boring. Life has no direction. No, life has purpose because we have a God of purpose. Amen? He said, I have made thee and I have formed thee from the womb. He told Jeremiah, even in his womb, I've called you to be a preacher. Listen, even when you're in your mother's womb, God had something in mind for your life. And he says, which will help thee. Now, you may feel like you're all by yourself, but God is there to help you. He's Eliezer, the God who helps. God is there to help you. And his help might just be there just to let you know he's by your side, but he's there to help you. And he said this, fear not, O Jacob, my servant. Notice this name he uses, thou Jeserun, who have I chosen. Now, the word Jeserun, the name Jeserun is only used four times. One time here, and I believe three times in Deuteronomy. The name Jeserun is a word, a description that means my upright ones. When God uses it these four times in the Bible, there are terms of, of affection, of closeness. It's kind of like a husband saying to his wife, honey, or dear, or whatever, you know, so some term of affection there. Or like the Bible uses, my beloved, or even my word brethren. The word brethren, when he says my brethren, it's, these are terms of affection. And God, when he used that word jeserun four times, he did it at a critical moment where there was insecurity in their hearts about, does God really love us? Does God really have our future in mind? Does God really care? And the answer is, yes, he does care. And yes, he does plan out your future. And yes, God does know, amen? And that God knows better than we do. And when he called him Jeserun, he says, Thou Jeserun, whom I have chosen. Listen, this morning, all I want to tell you today is we have a personal God. God is personally concerned about you. God is personally concerned about your burdens. God is personally concerned about your eternity. God is personally concerned about your fellowship. God is personally concerned about your fulfillment. God is personally concerned about your happiness. God is personally concerned about your hurt. God is personally concerned about everything and all things in your life and mine. Amen. Why? Because God loves you. 
Because God made us to have a personal relationship with him. Because God made us so that we would get saved. And getting saved, we'd realize that salvation is the beginning of a life that's everlasting. And we'd realize that through salvation, we're to have a relationship with God. And God mentions this. Notice, I'll give you two verses this morning. He said in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 4, For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. He said, listen, though that you, have, you refuse to acknowledge that relationship with me, he said, I've called you by your name. He said, I've even given you a last name. And then in 45, verse 6, he says, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. I just want to tell you this morning, as God was writing all this, I wish I had so much more time. As God was writing this, he was explaining to his people the incredible outpouring of love that he had for them, an unchanging love. As he said to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31.3, I've loved thee with an everlasting love. My friend, this morning, you might be wandering and you might be drifting and you may not be as close to God as you once were. You may be period, just not as close to God as you should be. But that doesn't change God's heart for you. God still loves you and God's still concerned for you and God pours out his heart for you because God's purpose will not be defeated. All he's trying to tell us is why are we fighting with God and why are we creating a different idea of God and why are we getting weary of God and why are we not content with God? He mentions here in chapter 45 a great thought. Notice verse 9. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. If he's the one that made us, why are we fighting with him? Why are we arguing with God? Why are we disagreeing with him? He said in verse 9, let the potsherd, the broken fragments of the pottery, strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioned it, what make us thou or thy work? He has no hands. He's a personal God. And all our bucking and our resistance on rebellion, in verse 16, this leads to shame against a holy and righteous God. He's a personal God. We see the flagrant sins. i got to close. We see the faithful sovereign. But you notice a free salvation. Look at verses 17 to 22. He said in verse 20, excuse me, Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, ye that are escaped to the nation. Now he's fast-forwarding them in verse, that verse there. He's fast-forwarding them to the day Cyrus would say, Okay, people, you need to go back to your land and rebuild the decay places and lay the foundation for the temple. He says, You've done your idol worship. You've gone against me. He says, You set up the wood of their graven image and you've prayed to a God that cannot save. He says, now, I've told you your sin. I've told you I'm faithful. But I said, he said, I want you to see something else. The bigger picture in all this is that there would be a generation that would come back. There would be a generation that do not remember, that did not know what God did for them back in Jerusalem, how David conquered the city, the city of Jebus, and gave it to them and became Jerusalem. There was a generation that did not know what it meant when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. But a generation would come back, and God, because of his love for them, he says, there is no God beside me, a just God and a Savior. There's none beside me. He says, look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I'm God and there's none else. And here's the thought that God wants to give. 
He wants everyone to realize that in his workings in our lives, though we can't explain everything, God is fully in control. And God's fully in control for one reason, that we would look to him and we'd realize that we need to get saved. That we'd look to him and realize that salvation's of the Lord. And that we'd look to him as God's people who come back to the land, that God made us to be his witnesses. Because he talks about that in chapters 40 to 46. He talks about you and I being his witnesses. God wants us to testify the fact that he wants all the world to look to him and be saved. Listen, this morning, whatever our troubles and whatever our difficulties and whatever our trials and whatever our heartaches and whatever our sorrows may be, we've got to look to God. We can look to we can only look to the doctor for so much, and we can only look to the times for so much, and we can only look to the news for so much, and we can only look to the politicians for so much, and we can only look to the economy for so much. Listen, it comes a time we have to realize and come face to face that our sins this morning, the worship that we're dealing with and the idols we're worshiping dealing with are the as the idol of self self-promotion self-interest self-protection self-worth all this is pride and by the way may i just say today for some of us who are anxious and worried we're not very careful we can give stock to our fears and anxieties to the point where we're so fearful so anxious we're actually worshiping our fears and anxieties instead of trusting the everlasting god look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth He's telling every unsaved person, listen, the hope for your life is look to Jesus and you can be saved. Look to Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the one who died for your sins. He was the Lamb of God for sinners slain. He says for every sinner, you can be saved today because Jesus took your place on the cross. When Jesus died for your sins, he satisfied all of God's demands for sins. Our payment price for sin was nailed completely upon him. God looked on his son and said, it is finished. He was taken off that cross. He was wrapped up in linen. They put a napkin over his head. They placed him in the tomb. But praise God, three days later, Jesus Christ rose again. And when he rose again from the dead, as we sang this morning, because he lives, you can live also. If you're not saved this morning, look unto him and be saved. It's a message that goes throughout the earth. It's why we send missionaries out. It's why we support foreign missions. It's why the, the mission of the church is for the training of leaders and training of men to go out and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's why every man should have a burden in his heart and a burning in his soul about getting the gospel to people. Listen, our world is not getting any better. Our, word is getting, our world is getting worse, but we have a gospel that can save, and we have a God that can save, and we have a God who's personal, a God who loves, and he says to this world, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for there's no God besides me. We have to be convinced in our heart, brother and sister in Christ, that there's only one gospel and there's only one God who can save and there's only one God who can make the difference and there's only one God who can make the difference. Listen, this morning, whether it's Donald Trump or it's Joe Biden in office, it doesn't matter if it's Democrat ruled Senate or Republican ruled Senate. It doesn't matter if the economy goes up or the economy goes down. Besides all those things, we have to remind ourselves those are not our gods. Joe Biden and Donald Trump and whoever it may be, they are not our gods and this economy is not our God and the university is our God. He is our God. There is one God and there's no God beside him. And if he's God, we must honor the fact that he is a gospel that needs to be preached and we should not be ashamed of him. And we should tell the world, look unto me and be ye save all the ends of the earth. Everything we do should be pointing people to Jesus Christ. Because there's no God besides him. There's no God beside him. He's our redeemer. He is our savior. And then would you notice as we close this morning, verse 23 quickly. He says, look unto me, be ye saved. Salvation's free to you, but not to God. It costs God everything. God's repeated message is, I am the Lord, there's none beside me. And for every believer here, look at verse 23. He tells us in verse 23, after salvation, 
Listen very carefully. This is my last thought. After salvation, there must be submission. Yes, there's a free salvation, but there must be a fearful submission. Verse 23 said, I've sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth, in righteousness it shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. That's where Paul got that from, Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. After salvation, there's submission. Is he the only God that you bow and worship? Is he the only king of your life? Is he your savior this morning? Have you called on the Lord to save you? The Bible says in Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's your only king. He's your only God. He's personal with you. Are you personal with him? Do you see the providence of God working in your life? Have you claimed the providence of God in your life? And this morning, if you're not saved, he invites you. He exhorts you. Look unto me. Look unto me. Look unto me. Look at me. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Look at my side. Look at my cross. Look at me and be saved.